All right, good morning. Good to see you today. Hope you've had a good week. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it, please, to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. If it's not there already, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we begin and ask him to help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to come. We ask you to help us as we uh, look at your word, as we seek to develop our skill in handling it. I pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to understand and see yourself and your gospel in what we'll look at. This morning, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, to Timothy chapter 2 is our, our text. It's going to be more of a launch point this morning than uh, an exposition. Uh, but you heard in our reading a concern in Paul's thinking, particularly here in chapter 2, but elsewhere in the letter, with those who are uh, striving over words, who are quarreling, and uh, who are getting the gospel wrong. Uh, read with me, please, um, in verse 14. So, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And and now he turns his attention to to Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I just want to briefly work through Uh, The text in verse 15, the emphasis here, do your best uh, to present yourself to God as one approved. The the idea here is that in these quarrels, there tends to be a spirit of trying to present oneself approved to others. And Paul's emphasis here is present yourself as one approved to God. Your doctrine, your preaching, your message needs to please God, not people. Then he goes on, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. When you do that, that's what happens. And finally, he says, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, the word of truth there is a phrase that Paul uses in two other places and explicitly defines it as the gospel. So here he's not talking about just the Bible. He's talking about the gospel itself, which is the message of the Bible in Paul's view. We, we get this when we went through Acts. We saw a little bit of this happening where Paul is preaching. Sometimes others are preaching, but they're constantly making these references to Old Testament texts 
that implied the gospel and bringing them in and applying them. What that means is the early Christians are wrestling with their Bible. They're wrestling with the gospel and they want to get it right. They want to get the message, the word of truth, right. Because they realize it is life and death. He gives an example in a few moments of somebody who gets it wrong. The resurrection has already occurred. Paul is not saying here, don't quarrel over words means don't worry about doctrine. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying the exact opposite. But he is saying don't worry about doctrine in a way that is sinful, in a way that is um, focused on impressing yourselves or impressing other people. Rather, do it such that you won't be ashamed before God. Wrestle with it. This word... Um, uh, where are we? Verse 15. Rightly handling has the idea of strive, this eager working towards. And so believers are to be uh, working hard to understand the message of the Christian faith. One commentator said it this, that phrase, rightly handling the word of the truth, he sums it up as this. Be accurate in delivering the message of truth. Be accurate. Get it right. So, with that in mind, that serves as, as the foundation for what I want to do this morning. Unfortunately, this morning is not going to be so much the warm sermon that we may have wanted the the roast beef meal, but um, it's a little bit more of a cool, I don't know, vegetable spread. (laughs) Um, It's important, and maybe in a larger church, we might have separated it into another time, but in our assembly, um, we have limited opportunities for this sort of thing, and so this morning, we're going to do something, once again, a little bit different. If you have a piece of paper or a phone, I'm going to get you to take some notes again this week. So last a couple couple weeks ago, a while back, um, I asked you to make a list. So I suggested you could bring up an email and use a draft or if you have a notes app. If you don't, I have paper here that you can use. Does anyone want some paper? And I have a pen. You good? You good? Anyway, all right. So, um, what I want to focus in on today is two principles of hermeneutics. First one is universal. Second one is my understanding of hermeneutics. So, I'm working from somewhat casual notes. Two principles. The first one, well, before we go there, let's let's do this writing assignment. So I'm going to give you two assignments, and we'll just take a few minutes to do it. The first one is um, history. Can you please write down several obscure events in human history 
um, ideally uh, before Christ. I'm looking for your ancient history, B.C. Um, and look for just personalities. I'll give the example Julius Caesar. Okay. Obscure historical events, people, things. Write down as many as you can think of. We'll take about two minutes. All right, keep writing those if, if they come to mind. Now, the second assignment is this. Um, I want you to write down, again, we'll stick to the more the Old Testament. New Testament's fine too, but more the Old Testament. Um, in this list, I want to do the same thing, only make it biblical stuff. All right, so it can be people, stories, events, texts, Bible verses, but um, look for obscure stuff. Some character that you haven't heard of, uh, thought about since Sunday school. Something quite obscure. Just write down as many as you can think of.
about 10 more seconds. Good. Now, as your brain works throughout this and other things come up, feel free to add to that list. We'll revisit it toward the end. Um, what we're going to do here is, is two principles of hermeneutics. And when I say hermeneutics, I'm talking about the science of interpretation. So another way of saying it is principles for interpreting the Bible or as the title puts it more simply, principles for understanding your Bible. The number one principle for understanding the Bible is context. Context, context, context. Context is king in interpreting the Bible, in understanding the Bible. And there are many elements of context. Okay? There's the context of the text. We read this morning, we read a long passage, and then I focused in on one verse of that. So the longer passage gave us the the textual context of the smaller text. Uh, There's cultural context. There's um, linguistic context. There's uh, literally dozens of forms of context. But the one I want to focus in on this morning is time, specifically the history in which a person, place, event, thing happens. And um, so what I want us to, to focus on is a question, where does it fit? Take a Bible story, Bible person, Bible event, where does it fit in the flow of history. And my goal this morning is to give us um, some tools to be able to answer that more effectively. So I talk periodically, Douglas talks periodically about the fact that we need to be studying the Bible, we need to be reading the Bible. My goal here is to equip us to do that better do it more effectively, to be able to make more sense of it when we're reading it. So this is my my goal, and the way I want to do it is by giving us a quick overview of biblical history. Okay? We're going to look at the entire thing. I'm going to put it all on a single slide. All right? And it's not as hard as it might sound. When I was in uni, one of my professors wrote up on the blackboard a line like this in order to help us do exactly that. The year one, and then just go back by 500, 5,000, 15, 2,000 BC. And what we can do is we can assign a major significant Bible character to each of these points, roughly, in order to get the big picture. 2,000 years ago, you get Abraham. 1,500 years ago, you get Moses. 1,000 years, not ago, but before 
year one. You get David. 500 years, you get Daniel. And in year one, you get Jesus. If we can remember this, it will give you a structure to build your positioning of whatever thing you're looking at in the Bible. You could pretty much take any book of the Bible and think, oh, where does it fit here? And get a pretty decent idea of that. And of course, before them, Adam. Alright, now I know the text on this is a little bit small, so if you're having trouble seeing it, I do have a few printed copies. Does anyone want a printed copy to follow along? Do you? Cool. Anyone else? I have a few more. I will put a copy of this online so you can download it. All right. Try not to get caught up looking ahead because I'm going to work through it systematically here. All right. One point of uh, warning before we delve in. When we look at Bible dates, it is almost never that the Bible gives us the date. Right, And so Bible dates, you have to be careful with them because what we're doing is we're trying to place this event in history. And there are many, many ways we can do that, but none of them are completely fail-proof. So some of these dates here are very general, the ones I've just put up. But all of the dates I give you are going to be general, sometimes just because it's general, I've tried not to put so much detail that it's impossible to follow. And and sometimes because scholars disagree on dates by as much as 300 years. Right? So, um, and there are very complex reasons why they do that. And sometimes it, it has to do with um, with their presuppositions. Their scholarship is unbelieving scholarship. When I say that, what I mean is there are many theologians who do not claim to be Christians. There are also many who claim to be Christians, but do not believe that God has revealed himself through his word. And so when they read the Bible, they don't believe it, sorry, they don't read it believing this is God's word to us. They look at it as a secular document. And there's some value in that. But there's the limitation in that, that it doesn't accept the Bible as authoritative. So you have to be really careful when you, if you Google some of these dates, you'll get all sorts of things, and it's pretty complex. So I'm not suggesting you jump in to do that without being aware, at least, that dates are a tricky area. I've used dates here not necessarily because I'm sure of them or I agree with them. I've erred on the side of conservative dates here, but they're... Lots of things that we're not absolutely certain about, and that's usually not a huge deal. Um, the big deal here is sequence. Sequence gives us a sense of what's happening and where it fits in the story. All right, so what we're going to do is try to build more data, more detail into this chart. So, first of all, this section here is covered in the Old Testament. This 
period here is the period of silence or the intertestamental period. It's, the Bible doesn't talk about it. And then we get the New Testament. And that's it. And these are, these are accurate. This chart is accurate as I intend it to be. It's my understanding of what these dates are. Okay. Um, good. Let's look at a little more detail of the structure. So we've got the Garden of Eden, and I've got that in, in dashed lines because we don't know for sure when that is. If you follow a timeline which is supposed to, which is assumes there were no gaps in the, um, 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 somebody help me with the word I'm looking for. Sorry? Yeah, the record, the, which, the genealogy, yeah, that's it. Then, then this could be somewhere between six and eight thousand BC, but there are lots of questions around detail and varying views. So, not to get caught up in that, but the, the garden is back here before that. The next major event, we've got the patriarchal period. Then we've got Egypt. Now, this is from the perspective of the Jewish people. So the Jewish people are in Egypt during this period of time. Then we've got the judges, the period in which the judges are ruling the Israeli people, the Jewish people. Then we've got the period of the monarchy. And then we're going to zoom in and try to just look at each of these periods a little bit more detailed. But this pretty much is, I'll just take that off, this is the entire spread of Bible history right there. If you can get a sense of this in your mind, you should be able to place just about any of the pieces of information written on your paper on the second list somewhere in this. But I'll give a bit more detail, and then we'll we'll talk about what's on your sheet. So the first zoom-in, I'm going to do, I think it's five zoom-ins. First one covers exactly this period of time, up to roughly 2,000. Here it is. So we've got 4,000 BC, 3,000, 2,000, and I've left the names up the top as a, a very or general, but you'll see it's not terribly precise. So we've got the Garden of Eden, and we've got the fall of mankind into sin at the end of the garden. Next thing we've got is the patriarchal period, which is the next thing on our big, big chart. It starts sometime around probably a bit before um, 2000. Somewhere in there, between the fall and the patriarchs, we've got the flood. Now these, we don't know the dates. I've got them away because we don't really know dates. We've got Babel. And somewhere in here we've got Job. It's possible that Job is contemporary with Abraham, but he could also be somewhere back in here. We don't know. But Job is floating around somewhere here. Cool, cool. So that's the beginning part. We're zooming out. Now we're going to move over, covering between the patriarchs and the judges. Here we go. Now we're covering 2012. We've got the patriarchal period. We've got the Egyptian period. And remember, the patriarchs, the, Jacob actually lives in Egypt for a while. So we've got an overlap there. And then we've got the judges, the period of the judges beginning. Now, what I want to do here is just start to place some details. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and these names are roughly 
where they belong in the timeline. Then we get some of these side characters, Lot, Ishmael, Esau, placing around the same time. Then we have Jacob's son, Joseph. And of course, we know that he is the one who gets the family over to Egypt. Then, at the end of the Egyptian period, we know we have Moses. And, of course, the period ends with the Exodus, which gives us a marker for all of those things that we read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Then we've got um, Moses' successor, Joshua. After the Exodus, we've got the wilderness wanderings. We've got the conquest of Canaan following that, but leading into the period of the Judges. So that's stuck right there in the middle between the Exodus and the beginning of the period of the Judges. And then we've got some of those early Judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. All right. Now we're going to zoom into the next section. This gets us halfway through the Judges period, through to the end of the monarchy. Here we go. Period of the monarchy is surprisingly short for the amount of time it takes to read the history of it. <laughs> At the end of the monarchy, you get the captivity, and notice it overlaps with the monarchy, because the monarchy continues into the captivity for a while. Um, at some periods during, uh, back in, in Judea, sometimes in captivity itself, there's a monarchy that continues and then you get a period of return from captivity. But this really simplifies it a fair bit. And so I want to kind of bring out a little more detail here. So what we're going to do is take the monarchy and divide it into two periods. We have the United Kingdom. This is when it's one kingdom. Israel, the 12 tribes, are one kingdom. And then we have the next period, which is the divided kingdom. This is after Solomon's children, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, can't sort it out, and the kingdom breaks into two. And in the north, you get Israel under Jeroboam, and it lasts for that period of time. It's really quite short. In the south, you get Judah. That's uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. So ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, and again, that's the time that it lasts. It's not that long. Now, um, the, the Israel goes into captivity at this point, and we're not given any indication that they ever come back. They pretty much fall out of the picture at that point. From then on, from this point on, we're just dealing with Judah, the lower kingdom, and that's that's what all we know about going forward. All right. Now, place some names in here. So we've got some of the later judges, Gideon, Jer, Samson. Then we've got the, the high priests. We've got Eli and Samson right there in that same, sorry, Samuel, right there in that same period. And then we've got the three kings of the United Kingdom. So the first king is Saul. Second king is David. And that's the beginning of the Davidic dynasty, which lasts right through the end for both kingdoms. There's only two dynasties in the Jewish uh, kingdom, Saul and David. David's son Solomon also rules over the United Kingdom, but his children 
it breaks up and you get the divided kingdom. Now, roughly in the middle, this is where we start to try to place some of the prophets. We get Elisha is one of the early prophets, working primarily in the north. And then Isaiah, again, focusing on the north. Jeremiah, focusing on the southern kingdom. Ezekiel, focusing on the captivity. What you find with the prophets is they primarily cluster around this period and this period. Why? Judgment, right? The the Jewish kingdom isn't going great. And uh, so the northern kingdom has Ahab, Jeroboam, the first, Jeroboam, the second, and pretty much a bad string of kings. And God brings prophets in who warn them of judgment. They don't repent. They don't repent. They don't repent. Captivity. The next cluster of prophets is down here. Uh, So Hosea, some of the other prophets fit in right here. The other cluster of prophets is around the end of the the southern kingdom. Same thing. Um, Apostasy, idolatry. God warns them. Turn, they don't. Turn, they don't. Turn, they don't. Captivity. And then you get a few few prophets who minister primarily in the captivity period and the return. Daniel, Ezekiel are the big names there. So your prophets, either the early prophets like Elijah, Elisha, are early on kind of telling the kings what to do, but not really about judgment. And then later on you've got end of the northern kingdom, there's a bunch of prophets, end of the southern kingdom, a bunch of prophets, and then some captivity guys. All right, and then um, and then we've got the return people. Zerubbabel returns from captivity and rebuilds the temple. So there are two temples in Jewish history. The first one is built by Solomon. The second one is built by Zerubbabel. The one Zerubbabel builds is upgraded by Herod the Great, and it's the one that Jesus is is um, circumcised at and preaches at. Um, then we get Ezra. He tries to rebuild the walls, make some progress, and then Nehemiah, who actually is able to finish building the walls. So that's all that period right there between around, uh, well, it's after uh, about 520-ish B.C. So that's that zoom in. All right, so now that brings us to the next section, and this is the period of silence. Now, we don't really have much biblical stuff here, but I do want to give us a sense of what's happening here. We have the Persian Empire. Gives way to the Greek period, and then the Roman period. Persian, we've got Xerxes I, Darius III toward the end. We're familiar with some of the Persian guys, the, the first Darius and Artaxerxes. They show up in the Bible and some of the, their interaction with Israel. Um, then we get Alexander the Great right toward the end of that, and he basically launches the Greek Empire, but it doesn't last long at all. When he dies, it turns into chaos. Basically, everything that he amassed lasts for about 20 years, and then it just sort of all falls to, to rubbish, and all different lines take different places. So here's where we get the famous Ptolemies down in Egypt. Um, Ptolemy, uh, Sopater, the Cleopatras, the one we know of, the one we think of when we think Cleopatra, Cleopatra the Seventh. 
way down here in the Roman period, but it's it's that line that came from Alexander the Great. So you've got this Greek influence, even though it's not really a Greek empire for long, and that's Hellenism. That's why much of our the Acts, there's this Hellenized Jews. Anyone who's not in Israel is usually a Hellenized Jew, a Greek-influenced Jew, somewhere out in the rest of the world. That's that period. That's why that happens, that you get these conflicts and acts between the Hellenized Jews and the non-Hellenized Jews, the local. Then we get, um, toward the end of this silent period, you get the Maccabees. This is now in Judea. You get the Maccabees and their attempts to wrestle um, control from some of the other kingdoms. You get the Hasmonean um, rulers as well. And that leads into the early Roman period. So now we're talking about Roman Republic. So it's not an empire yet. It's just sort of got client states and Judea gets kind of sucked into that. And then what happens is the Herod dynasty comes in and kind of works under Rome. So Herod the Great here is just after Julius Caesar, and he kind of gets control of, of this area. He's the guy that the wise men go to. And then you meet Herods all throughout the New Testament, right? So you've got Antipas, Agrippa, Agrippa II, and various other things that they just keep popping up. John the Baptist, Jesus, James, and all sorts of things. So there's quite a few Herods, and they're all his dynasty. But they're all working with Rome, and that's kind of the picture when we get to the New Testament, which is this really tiny period of time, like really tiny. And that's it. That's from beginning to end of that period of time. I'll zoom in on that and just get a quick idea. Jesus is born probably just before the first year. Jesus was born before Christ, B.C. <laughs> um, then you get Jesus' ministry. That's it. About three and a half years, sometime probably leading up to about 30 AD again. These are very specific dates, and you can't be too... Um, although we do know a lot about these timelines. Then we get, at the end of his ministry, his death, resurrection, his ascension. And then we get the, the apostles' ministry. Paul's missionary journeys, Peter in Jerusalem, James in Jerusalem, um, various apostles spreading out throughout the, the world... And right around there is Paul's martyrdom, 66 AD, which means all of his missionary journeys, all of his letters, all of it's done by this point. And then that long line afterwards, there's a few other apostles still about. By the end, by about 90s, early 90s, you've got John finishing up his writing. In 80, probably around 80, he finishes his gospel, and then he writes his letters, and then he finishes up with Revelation, probably mid to late. 90s and dies sometime soon after that. And that's it. That's the end of the entire New Testament era. I think that's all that's on that chart. Alright, so there we are. That's the summary with all the breakdown. That is the entire history of the Bible. My goal here is to get that kind of snapshot in our mind and then to be able to place pretty much anything, wherever you happen to be reading, if you're reading through the Bible and something starts to feel a bit boring, like, what do I want about this? Where does it fit? What's happening? Where is this in the story? So, what I want to do with the rest of our time, and we won't take long, but we'll interact. I want to get some of the, 
volunteer some things from your list and see if we can place them. Biblical, secular, I don't mind. Just trying to integrate in our thinking historical context. Who wants to start? Pick something. Sorry? J-A-E-L. All right. Kent Peg and the Hammer. All right. So, what do we know about that? Where is it? Where is it placed? So the the person, it's J A E L, the one who put the tent peg in um, one of the rulers. Oops. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, um, what do you know where it is in the Bible? Yes. What? Where is it? Judges. Okay. So that gives us the judges period. I'm just going to click. I've got... That's the beginning. So I have charts. We could actually look up where it is. But basically, if you're reading that, you'll know the story before it and the story after, and you'll know where it fits in the judges period. But pretty much puts it right in here. Or here. This is the later period. I'm pretty sure it's going to be somewhere right around here. Deborah. Yep. So, yeah, this is actually almost a complete judges period. So Deborah's the the late half of the end of the first half. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> right around the middle of the judges period. That's where Jael Jael fits. Good. Who else? What else? Discovery of the printing press. All right, so discovery of the printing press. What we have to do is do this and what was it? Discovery. Invention. Invention of the printing press. Movable type. <laughs> so for many, many years, you could carve and then press. Press, press, press. But you literally had to carve an entire page into wood or something and then press it on. In around 1500, you get the movable type, which is what revolutionizes the Western world. Um, so I know in, in Asian cultures, you have the early kind of printing, very early. But again, it's so much work that to print a book with 100 pages would be years and very expensive. Movable type says we've got letters and we can arrange them into the page, print it, and then take them all out, put them in new ones, and makes it vastly easier, vastly cheaper. But again, you've got to take this and you would be <laughs> half a kilometer that way. <laughs> good. What else? Socrates. All right, good. Um, anyone know the date for Socrates? Socrates is going to be right around this period, four to three to four hundred BC. So, just after Nehemiah, Jeremiah, could almost be a contemporary of Nehemiah, Xerxes. Cool. Jonah. We're back to here. Jonah is 
about here. Soon after Elijah. Um, so he would fall. The northern kingdom before they destroy Israel is facing God's judgment or sometime right around that period is facing God's judgment. Good? What else? Esther. Esther. Clues, hints? Persian Empire. Where is Esther? Captivity. Well, that she's one of the Jews who's been taken elsewhere. I'm pretty sure she's in the the Judah's captivity, but I'm not sure. Like I actually saw a question mark on a chart yesterday when I was looking at that. Um, it's, she's probably placing sometime around the captivity or even a bit later because not all the Jews returned. There were actually quite small numbers of Jews who returned from captivity and in, you know, periods, uh, separate groupings. Um, so yeah, she may be one of the ones that ended up staying and so somewhere around here, but that's one of the ones we don't know the exact date, but it's roughly in that period. Good? What else? Bob. Sorry? Bob. Yes, Balaam and the donkey. All right, what do we know about facts about that story that would place it? Is is Baal a prophet? Is a prophet? Is he Jewish? If I remember correctly, he's the one that's prophesying against the Jews, or he's being paid to prophesy against the Jews. So I'm not even sure if he's Jewish. I don't think he is. But um, it's around the wilderness time, right? When they're in the wilderness. Which places it sometime right around here, before they're fully established, while they're in the wilderness, wilderness after the Exodus, so somewhere around 1400 B.C., give or take. 50 years. <laughs> Good. What else? Jabez. Jabez. Prayer of Jabez. I remember that. What book of the Bible is that in? Leviticus? No. Numbers? It's probably Numbers. I think it's Numbers. It's in one of the genealogies. All right. So where do we place that? Thoughts? Jabez. Jabez. J-A-B-E-Z. We get just this, it's in a genealogy, and we get just this tiny snippet of, he prayed a prayer, here's what the prayer was, and then it moves on. Chronicles. Chronicles. All right. Does it give them, who's the, 4.10. So, it says, ancestry of the kings of Judah. So, kings of Judah puts us here. The chronicles are the, the chronicles of the kingdoms both north and south. So yeah, that puts it somewhere in between here. He's not at the end. So yeah, and he's not at the beginning. We know what happens at the very beginning, and we know um, Jeremiah Rehoboam here. So yeah, it would have to be sometime in potentially there or there. We could look at those chronicles and place him exactly who he's between. Um, 
and you know there are we could easily chart out each of the kings. We do know quite a bit about the sequence of the kings because of the Book of Kings and the Book of Chronicles. So, good. Who else? What else? Ham. All right. So that takes us back to immediately, well, before the flood and after the flood. What we do know is way before Abraham, quite a bit before, and well after the fall. We can trace it at least thousands of years, uh, about 2,000 years at least, after the fall. Places at some time, some place, probably around 4,000 B.C., give or take a couple hundred years. <laughs> Good. What else? Buddha, Gautama Buddha um, is what, 800 BC? Sorry? It's possible. Um, you know, look that one up. That one should be pretty easy, you know, accurate dating. Fifth or sixth century. Um, Putting us around the captivity, Ezekiel Jeremiah. Fascinating. All right, who else? What else? Uh, to my knowledge, the Israelites did not were not involved in the building of any pyramids. <laughs> that is my understanding. <laughs> they were involved in building cities, according to scripture, but it is apparently um, a bit of a, a myth that they helped with pyramids. Pyramids, um, when we get to Julius Caesar, the pyramids were already older for them than it is from us to him. They were already ancient, thousands of years old at that time. So, yeah, they are... Incredibly old. Yeah, wow. So that places us. Before before Abraham. <laughs> Incredible. Aristotle. So so the three big philosophers, you got Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, is that correct? Anyone want to correct me? So Aristotle and they taught each other and we placed them around uh, sorry, we're going forward. Yeah, so right around Nehemiah. So Aristotle is the oldest one, so potentially. Um, they were all Greek? Yes. In fact, um, was it Aristotle? One of those three trained school Alexander the Great. And from his placing, he's, um, I think, 330 A.D., so his schooling would have been about 350 A.D., so probably one of the later ones, um, Plato probably. Hippocrates, I don't know where he fits. I, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't know his dating. Good question. Yep. Vikings, I don't 
know. I don't know dating for them. They go way... I don't know. I, I, I was about to make a guess, but I can't even make a guess. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> Confucius. I don't know who's dating. Confucius is five, five to 600 BC. So that puts him... Yeah. Seek Jeremiah. Good. What else? So when Jesus was in them, what philosophers were around? Um, the Greek era of dominance was fairly well played out by that stage. So you tend to get the Roman philosophers, like um, I know Seneca, right around that period. But several Senecas, two Senecas, and um, mm, some of the um, Stoics, Epicureans, um, Cynics are starting to come, and then early forms of Gnosticism. But that's yeah, that's more the philosophical world at that stage. All right, just a few more quickly. Samson. Samson, yeah, he actually made the chart here. Bam. So he's almost a contemporary of Samuel. Who's that? Uh, Elijah. Yeah, so he has a very short ministry just before Elisha, but it's much shorter than Elisha's. Um, and I think he's in the north as well, and he's during the reign of Ahab, and yeah. What about Hannibal? Hannibal. Hannibal. I should know. I can't quite place him in history. He's, um, I want to say he's Greek. I want to say... Yep, so that places him... Yeah, the Republic, the Empire has begun. I'm not sure how long the Republic lasts, but I'm pretty sure it's BC, 27 BC or something. Hannibal dies in 183 BC. Yeah, so that puts him here. Um, so probably, if, if, if that's an accurate date, and there are... Um, He may be, uh, what am I trying to say? Yeah, where? Yeah. It's a period of history I'm not terribly good with. Um, sorry? Yeah. Yeah, so he's, it's in the early development before the Romans gain ascendancy. It's a bit of a chaotic period there. Good. What else? The Vikings were the 8th to 11th century. When was that? 8th to 11th century BC. So we're going between 8th century would be 8 to 900 and 11th century. So, yeah, that puts the Vikings literally contemporary with David. All right. 
Good. So one of my goals here is when you're reading through the Bible and you, you get to that thing and you're like, oh yeah, we're talking about this king, he's obscure, you never hear him preached about, that you can kind of place him in the picture and know what's happening. Or when you're reading one of the prophets and it's like, who are they talking to? Why are they talking to them? Yep, Isaiah, yep, he's talking to, and they'll tell you at the beginning of the prophets, they'll tell you what kings, and usually they'll say Judah or they'll say Israel. So it's easy to miss it because you just expect, oh, Israel, of course it's Israel, this is the Jews. But Israel means the top ten tribes, that kingdom of the Jews. So this gives you, hopefully, a bit of a structure to place anything and the more we can get this clear in our minds, and this is where we're going to get to the second principle and move on. Second principle is the gospel is the ultimate point. All of this is an intentional working of God towards an end and a goal. And that is the second Adam, Jesus. When he comes, there's not a whole lot left It's just a very short period of time. He gives the commission, go tell everyone he came. (laughs) And then there's this big gap. I mean, think about it. This is 2000. You got to do that on the other side. That's us. Big, big gap. But then he comes again and finishes it. Everything up to that point is get us there. But hold on. You guys think this will work. I was thinking last night, one of the things going on for us. So back here... You know, they're thinking, they're thinking, well, may, I mean, back here, they're thinking, well, maybe Cain is the one. Maybe he's the son of Eve that will crush the serpent's head. Oh, not Cain. What about Abel? What about Seth? Oh, I'm sorry, not Seth. What about Abel? What about, and each child, they're thinking, maybe this is the one. All right? Then we get to the patriarchs, and God says, well, it's going to be through you, I'm almost 100. I can't have kids. You're going to have a kid. Has a kid. This constant clarification of what's happening. But also you get this, well, we're just this tiny family. We, we can't do anything. We can't save the world. We can't produce a savior. No, you can't. You're slaves. you got nothing. And then most, but I, I am your God and I'm not like the other gods. And I want the whole world to know. I'm going to take the greatest empire in the world and let and crush them, crush them from some slaves, some some silly Semitic slaves. It's a big family that just had too many kids and got too big, but they're slaves. And they don't win it by battle. They win it by just standing by the ocean and, you know, waiting for God to work. Like, God insists... I did this in the Exodus. And then you get the monarchy. Well, the judges, first of all. Well, we can sort ourselves out. That's disastrous. Well, we want a king. King's what's going to solve this. King's not going to solve it. Disastrous. The prophets, even the prophets, um, well, pretty much every single one of them fails. And when you know the rare one succeeds like Jonah, they have a winter about it. I mean... And the priests, the priesthood, we haven't traced that hardly at all. But again, it starts right here in the wilderness. And it goes through until, well, by 70 AD, it's completely demolished. But by 30 AD, the priests are the enemies of the gospel. 
Um, and we already have the, the temple being destroyed right here at the end of the monarchy, the first temple. We rebuild it and then proceed to gut it from the inside to where Jesus comes and it kills him. So everything we tried, and this is what I was thinking last night, is part of the 2,000 years since then, particularly the last 500 years since then, what do we have? We had humanism. We had rationalism. We had democracy. We had republicanism. And our temptation is not to think that the our nation's gods will will get us through as opposed to God. Our temptation is not to think that the monarchy is what's going to make us respected. Our temptation is to think democracy will save us. A republican, the rule of law, will save us. And what are we finding out in our day? Democracy and the rule of law, constitutional monarchy or, or republicanism, it's not working. All these places around the world, it's not working. Communism, we try, that, that's like the ideal. Last century, we had to learn, well, that wasn't working. So we've got our ideas, and God's exhausting every single one until we're getting to the stage where, like, well, what's the solution? More democracy. Well, have you watched the news lately? <laughs> At the end of the day, God is exhausting our attempts to save mankind in a desperate attempt, I said desperate, God's not desperate, but a, a, the desperation of love. He wants us to get it. There's one hope. It's Jesus the Christ. He came the first time. He's coming back. And when he does, he actually will solve all the problems. It won't be through democracy or republicanism or monarchy, constitutional. It'll be... Theocracy, monarchy, dictatorship, however you want to call it, it'll be God reigning. Specifically, Jesus reigning. This is the whole Christian message, and every single piece of that, every detail, needs to be interpreted as it's a part of the flow towards this goal. We saw that in David Platt's handling of the Exodus. It's not just a story. It's not just God, even even just God singling out the Jewish nation. It's God demonstrating that all of Egypt's gods are inferior. The, the monarchy period is God demonstrating idolatry. The gods of the nations will not satisfy you. They will not save you. So it's, everything is driving us towards Jesus, towards the cross. And the cross is pointing us and getting us straight to God. We're going to sing as we close.